Hello everyone, welcome to yet another episode of the SOC podcast by the SOC, that's some ornithological chat brought to you by the Scottish Ornithologists Club. It's the end of March, you're probably listening to this in the beginning of April perhaps. The chiff chaffs are here, the willow warblers are on the way, the nice weather's coming, the alpine swifts seem to have missed out most of us unfortunately, but it's a lovely lovely time to be out birding. I am joined this evening by Andrew Matthews and Mike Thornton, who are representing the uh, the Lothian branch and a particular element of the Lothian branch, which is called the Lothian Discussion Group. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a mentoring scheme that they ran a few years ago. Uh, but I'm not going to talk about that very much because I don't know anything about it. And there wouldn't be much point in inviting these two on if I was going to witter on about it. So why don't we just say, Andrew and Mike, please tell us who you are, where you are and what you do. We'll start with you first, Andrew, because you're on the left of my screen. Uh, yep. Hello, I'm Andrew Matthews. Uh, I'm currently recording from the Highlands. Um, I work as a consultant ornithologist, so just started the job a little over a year and a half ago. And um, it's fantastic. You get to go all over Scotland and do bird surveys, mostly vantage point surveys, which is sitting on the top of a hill um, for six hours, getting very cold. Um, but seeing some amazing wildlife, seeing goshawks, seeing golden eagles. So it makes it all worthwhile. So that's that me. sounds nice. And Mike. Hi there, I'm, I'm Mike Thornton. I am based in North Berwick, a very keen local birder. I currently work for the Scottish Wildlife Trust as a project manager uh, managing a project called Riverwoods which is about uh, creating and restoring riparian woodland at a catchment scale so it's a National Lottery Heritage funded project but I've, I've been a, a keen birder in the Lothians for, for many years now. Great okay so we're going to talk about this this mentoring scheme um, so Mike can you tell me where the idea came from and you know what the sort of the, the, the aim of running the scheme was okay uh well i think many birders actually have had mentors in the past uh, i certainly had a very influential mentor he was a chap called ray murray and in fact was a a former president of the soc and i think ray he he really inspired me he motivated me he educated me and he nurtured my my interest and my passion in birds, which has lasted really all my life. And uh, I think other well-known SOC birders and presidents have, have probably had mentors as well. I know Roy Dennis in one of his talks referred to the great George Watterson as being his mentors. And I think it's these mentors who who you know, nurture that skill and that talent and 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 uh, allow it to develop and I think what we tried to do with this scheme was to offer a mentoring scheme to young the, a younger generation of 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 ornithologists to to help improve their identification skills in a fairly informal setting and we, we used the uh, East Lothian Winter Atlas survey uh, to, to run this mentoring scheme but we also wanted to, uh, through this scheme, recruit new members to take part in local ornithology, such as atlas uh, studies like the West, the East Lothian Winter Atlas, reading bird surveys and web surveys. We wanted to use it to promote the SOC to a younger audience and connect that younger audience to your know, birding local ornithology network. So it was really, I think those were the, the core aims of the, the project. It sounds like a really, really worthwhile thing to do. And you're talking about essentially sort of engaging with what feels like a new a new cohort of people, young birders, possibly sort of people who, who don't have, I'm not saying that all young birders are inexperienced, but, you know, it feels likely that if you're engaging with a bunch of young birders, you're going to be engaging with at least some people who have a bit less field experience than old folk like me and you. Uh, not you, Andrew. Unfortunately, I can't. Uh, <laughs> me, me and Mike are definitely the old men here. Yeah. Um, so. so this this is prob it was probably a little bit different from sort of setting up anything similar to anything that you'd set up before. Whether was there anything in particular that you needed to consider? Uh, yeah. So so we wanted to basically uh, you 
offer this mentoring scheme to allow younger people to participate in a, a local project. In this in this instance, it was it was a local atlas, East Lothian Atlas project, uh, and it, we wanted uh, to to show them uh, and and teach them bird identification skills, but also get them to to help collect. You know, important data on the abundance and distribution of of, of wintering bird populations in East Lothian. So, uh, you you, what we did was we advertised the the project to uh, two universities in Edinburgh to attract interest and and recruit. Uh, you uh, mentees, if you like, your students onto the scheme. And we got a very good response. Actually, we 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 had over, uh, over thirty uh, students registering on the scheme. And one of the things that sort of I was thinking was that, you know, it, if I was to reach out to a bunch of students and said, "Do you want to come for a walk in the woods with me?" Some of them might like the idea, and some of them might think, "Well, actually, that's that's quite daunting." You know, a strange man mm. is offering to take me out into the countryside and um you know I, I think it's really important to be conscious of that sort of thing so how did you get around that yeah that's a very good point so we we, we had to consider uh, the safeguarding issues around your birders taking your know, younger people out into the field uh, in small groups uh, first of all we we didn't uh, we structured the scheme in such a way that we we didn't allow one-to-one mentoring. It had to be at least two. It had to be at least, in fact, three mentees to to each mentor. And we had we also uh, drafted a, an agreement that uh, all uh, mentors had to sign. Which it was an agreement about how to behave and interact uh, you know, with 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 the student and with the mentee. So it was these were just sort of. Uh, safeguarding checks that we put in place to mm-hmm. ensure that it was all it was all safe and legitimate. Yeah, I think it's really it's really important mm-hmm. to do that because you know as as great an idea as it is, it all it all falls flat on its face if you if nobody want if nobody feels safe coming out and, and learning from you. But yeah, 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 let's let's move on. Crucially, Andrew, this is for you. Did it deliver? And did it deliver in both in terms of the young people who came out to learn from you and also in terms of what the the branch hoped to get out of it uh, absolutely it did i think i mean it's, it's a difficult question because we came into it with a very little idea of what we actually wanted to get out of it ultimately we, we hadn't really done this before so this was a kind of a pilot scheme if anything so just a proof of concept just to show that it worked at all would be a success in our minds and if we could get anyone to join that would also be a success and get them to come out and learn some things and uh, I think that was my one fear was that no one would sign up and then be left with all these eager mentors and and no, no one to come out and actually get, take something from it but um, uh, yeah so we had very little idea how many people were actually going to sign up when we first sent out the advertisements I think we sent them to two universities but as Mike said we got about 30 people signing up altogether which was uh, we'd call a very big success and actually um, the important thing is 26 of those 30 after signing up came out to the sessions so that showed a really strong commitment from the people who did sign up initially to come out um, and actually we had a, I think a total attendance of 57 so 57 separate occasions that a student had came out to do some of the mentoring mm-hmm. and, and be mentored by someone um, so just some nerdy stats actually because this is quite interesting but please do uh, stop <laughs> me talking 50 56 percent of people went to one session um, which is obviously brilliant that people went to the sessions at all um, but actually 20 percent of people went to two sessions so they came back and 24% came back three times or more with them. Um, I think we had a, a few people who came, one person came five times and one person came nine. So nine oh. separate occasions, <laughs> they get the gold medal. Um, <laughs> but I, I'd like to think that shows that the, that the mentors must have been doing something right and, and were um, just teaching the right things and inspiring people. Um, yeah. I, I've obviously come from the mentee side of it. So 
um, being a, a young birder, I'm kind of reaping all the, the knowledge that they're imparting on us. Um, and one of the things I found quite valuable from it was actually just socializing with other young birders and just being out and feeling like you're finally on the same page with people because it can be quite daunting coming into the SOC um, as a young birder and uh, as at the discussion groups all these people giving these amazing insights into the bird life in the area and obviously they've lived there for a long time and they've accrued a lot of knowledge and and you can feel quite hopeless when you're trying to add any kind of helpful input into that so it's really nice to meet other people at a similar stage of our learning development but yeah I, I'd say it, I suppose it was a bit foolish in hindsight that we hadn't had particularly strict ways of evaluating our success for the scheme obviously we had the, the number of people who attended but what was the quality of that experience like um, and we, we did get testimonies from both the mentors and the mentees which were overwhelmingly positive so I think that's a really good sign. I think especially the mentees were commenting on just how much they learned um, and just how much they enjoyed being out. And I think one thing to add actually is it was a great opportunity to get students out from the city to go see places you just wouldn't be able to without a car. So grouping these people together and taking them out to great birding sites. From the, from the stats and from the testimonies, I Clearly people enjoyed themselves, which I think is probably first and foremost what you're looking to get out of such a scheme. Because if if people don't enjoy themselves, then they're, they're probably not going to try it again, are they? Um, I want to ask you both from a sort of slightly different standpoint. What did you learn from it? So Andrew, from, a, from the position of being a mentee and Mike from being a mentor, you probably learned very different things. So I'm going to go to Mike. Can you tell me first, you know, what you learned from the whole experience? Well, uh, one of the great uh, positives was just seeing the sort of level of enthusiasm from you know, younger people keen to learn about ornithology and, and develop field skills. That was that was quite heartening and, and uh, encouraging. That was, uh, but, yeah, one thing that I think I learned from the, uh, the experience was how challenging it is to just describe you know, common birds that you might see every day. For instance, I, I struggled to, to explain the difference between the song of both great tit and blue tit. You know, um, and, 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 you know, I think the great tit has a, a slightly harsher, drier, rattling uh, song than, than does the blue tit. But uh, by by explaining this to beginners, it sort of reconsolidated it and, and and made me appreciate the differences more, which was was good for my my birding skills and and, and my observational skills. So, and the same goes, I think, for rook and carrion crow. I struggled to 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 to, to explain the differences be, differences between those calls. So I think by doing that, you know, by trying to explain the difference between common birds you know in, in either uh, visual appearance or, or song and calls it does hone your and sharpen your observational skills and I, I think one of the key things there is it's important to take notes because by taking notes you 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 reconsolidate and uh, improve your field skills and, and your learning I've had much the same experience as as you with that I think in a similar situation as well people asking me you know what's that call is it a great tit or a chaffinch and you know you say it's a chaffinch and someone says why and you think well because it just is but but because it just is that that doesn't cut the mustard as an answer for somebody who wants to learn you really have to think about why that why you've made that identification and so much of it for these familiar birds is instinctive and I find it hard to rummage around in my brain and come up with what I've actually done to identify that bird it just happens it in the same way that you can recognize your friend when they're walking down the street 200 yards in front of you you might be able to say oh it's a it's a tall guy with blonde hair or whatever it doesn't differentiate that person from every other tall guy with blonde hair but you know but you can't explain why you've made that difference whereas stuff that we're less familiar with you know you can reel off a whole list of features for Blythe's reed warblers and, and marsh warblers because it's, that identification is an entirely different process but for the beginner they're they're applying 
that rarity process to every bird they're seeing. So I totally, I totally hear what you're saying about that challenge. You know, I like the idea of struggling to sort of tell someone how you tell between a crow and a rook, because apart from mentioning a few obvious things, I'm not sure how I would do it either. So is this the sort of thing that you learn, Andrew? And um, did you did you feel like the mentors were were struggling to, to explain things at times? I, I did notice that a little bit in, in the nicest way that sometimes, and it was when we asked questions about more common birds that that, that you're right, there was sometimes it's just this the answer, which was, it just is. <laughs> and and they're, they're obviously very open with the fact that they, they struggle to actually pinpoint why they're just so familiar with it, that it becomes difficult to explain. Um, ha- having said that, just having that, confirmation was sometimes really valuable I think for me learning when I first learned to ID birds and bird watch I'd often be out with my binoculars um, and a book um, and I, I didn't have anyone to confirm anything so anything I ever saw was I'd kind of have to eventually make a judgment call as to whether I was confident enough that what I saw was what it was and that is sometimes quite unfulfilling and and to finally be out with people and even though not necessarily they give the most amazing description some of the birds that you are familiar with or think you're familiar with to get that confirmation at last from someone it is actually really really helpful and just mm-hmm. encouraging I think but but as you're saying Mike I think it, it I did also realize just how much of a challenge it is to 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 be good at mentoring in the sense that how do you teach people I think because I mean it's obviously a big issue because it's what people will spend you know four or five years studying and then their life career learning to be a teacher so it's it's a very important skill but yeah I thought that was very interesting I, I suppose one final thing to note was actually we it was we didn't know exactly how formal to to make the sessions and how standardized to make them I think we went into it thinking we'll give the men mentors quite a lot of freedom to choose how they want to run the session as long as you go out and walk with the students and and give them tips and tricks along the way but we we, I think we had mixed responses from the mentors um if I'm right Mike uh, over whether it was whether they wanted to have a more standardized structure or not I think I, I went to two sessions, but the two sessions were quite different. But having said that, they both had their own merits, and I think they played to each mentor's strengths. But um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting thing to think about. I think I think what distinguished this scheme from other training opportunities was the fact that it was quite an informal approach to learning in the field. Uh, you know, uh, with with experienced. Birders, and I think you, I think there's a there's a, a value to that approach because I, you know it's it's a perhaps a more natural learning approach in the field. You know, observing and confirming the identification of birds with with you know, more experienced birders. I think you know, so. You, you, the, the the opposite to that, of, of course, would be perhaps more very structured training you know in a classroom uh you know, with a with a set structure which has its place but you know i think you know there's not i don't think out there there's as ma- many opportunities to learn in the field with experienced naturalists or birders yeah i i, I want to sort of reflect back on something that andrew said no matter how long you've been birding and how experienced you get it, it it's there'll always be times when it's nice to have a second opinion um i i still sort of seek out that sort of thing these days not that i'm sort of holding myself up to be some sort of expert or whatever but you know i i don't i don't think we ever stop learning i think if you ever consider that you have stopped learning then you've probably lost quite a lot of the fun from the hobby and i'm always bouncing ideas off people and running things past folk and it's yeah it, it does. It gives you it gives you that little bit extra confidence, as you say, to to make the identifications. But anyway, so we've spoken about what you've learned, what you've both learned from this situation. Perhaps what you could, if you could both tell me why, from your, with your different hats on, mentee and also student and and 
for, for the sake of this question, Mike, you're sort of a, a branch representative. Why is this important? Why is this learning element important? Oh, for, for Andrew first. Well, I think it's an incredibly important tool for garnering engagement. I think the moment you can get someone to think for themselves, uh, to, to be with someone and allow them to work through things in their own head and then work with the mentor, I think that yeah is incredibly good for it, boosting attention and focus um, and, and ultimately engagement. I think it was something I was thinking about actually being in the field, I suppose is more of a side note, but having these experiences where you're outside and you're, you you see a bird and you listen to the call and then and you you work with the mentor and they explain why the bird is what it is, you develop these such strong memories and connections in your head, which you'll remember and make use of much more than reading from a from a ID book or from just listening to a talk. It's these kind of physical memories you get, which I think are more important than anything else. Um, and I, I think it's 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 almost like sensory learning. The more kind of senses you can involve in the situation, and then if you want to remember, oh, how did I remember how that bird sounded? Then you take yourself back to when you were on that next to that hedgerow and you saw the bird and you heard it singing. And and I think that's a really important part of it. And and Mike. From the sort of point of view of the of the discussion group or the Lothian branch or even the SOC more widely, what do you think this sort of learning element can bring? Well, I, I think uh, learning inspires, of course, uh, or develops knowledge, uh, can encourage uh, participation. I think in 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 ornithology and birding. I think it's about. I think. Yeah, I personally feel that we have a responsibility to to encourage and nurture learning and and exp- the experience of of the natural wor- world and younger generations who will essentially inherit the, the natural world and 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 hopefully will develop a sense of of stewardship and care for the natural natural world world through that learning. Uh, so I think you know that that connection really is is an important one that we, we must uh, develop. You know, have you seen new people coming along to to branch meetings, or has there been any new members? We've had we have had a few of the the students who have uh, continued to attend and come along to the, the Lothian discussion group. And in fact, one of them who, att- who, who, who was on the, the mentoring scheme uh, presented some of the, the data that was collected in uh, the Atlas to the, the, the discussion group or presented some of, of his data to the group. So it was, you know, I, I think that was a great uh, result that, that came out of the, the, the mentoring scheme. So, yeah, I mean, I think that there probably isn't a an SOC branch or bird club in anywhere in the UK that isn't crying out for young people to come into the club and be active members of the club. So if what you're doing is bringing people, you know, encouraging people's interest and engagement with the natural world, breaking down any barriers they might have had in terms of coming along to club meetings, discussions, you know, and making them feel comfortable enough that they can talk to you rather than just sitting passively in the background, but, you know, present things to you as well, then it's a really, it's a really wonderful thing to be able to to do all of those things in one relatively simple exercise, I guess. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's about um, being inclusive as well. It's about creating a, a an inclusive, welcoming environment for mm-hmm your all ages and 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 groups of people to to engage in ornithology ecology conservation you know, and i think you know, uh, i think the soc needs to 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 offer that and and participate in in, in that process you know to, to, by encouraging developing an inclusive welcoming approach to a, a wide audience so this that feels to me like a really essential piece of advice that you would give to any branch or bird club that was wanting to do something similar to this. This is I'm going to go off piece a little bit here. What other things do they need to think about? Yeah, um, 
Well, I think you you you've, you have to uh, structure it in a way that that uh, ensures that you have enough your mentors available who have the right skills and the, the you know communication skills and and birding skills to to encourage your younger people to to get involved and to to train them in the field and uh, that's one thing we in fact thought about was you know is there perhaps there's a need there in terms of uh, providing training or support for mentors to teach you know, an ornithologist to, to, to teach field skills and encourage younger people to get involved yeah i mean that's exactly the sort of thing i was thinking of it's all very well encouraging a bunch of young people to come to these you know field sessions to learn if you don't have the right people there teaching them so yeah i think it's really it's really really important to to consider that sort of thing first one thing i could add is actually focusing on the idea of keeping momentum with a, a mentoring scheme because i think we got into the rush of setting the mentoring scheme up and got everything going um but once we reached the end of a winter atlas we realized we don't have anything left to offer the students coming coming onwards it, it kind of stopped we lost this momentum and everyone just dissipated and we didn't take advantage of that engagement at the time and i think that's something which is really important is don't let all that hard work go to waste and and obviously it didn't in terms of the skills but providing them more opportunities and getting them more involved and more engaged in, in citizen science and boosting their skills and employability and the rest of it um so i think planning ahead and thinking what's the next steps and another important thing was considering obviously they're giving you their contact details so you you have to be quite explicit on what how far you're going to take in terms of giving them opportunities how much have they agreed and signed up to so as long as you can set the contract up at the beginning and what they're agreeing to um and if you want to continue it further make sure you can include that in a future email and say would you like to join this list and just try and keep the momentum going uh, as for as long as possible really but that's something which I think regretfully we didn't do as well as we could have done but that's definitely something to consider for the future and that's the benefit of running a pilot scheme you don't have to get it right first time the, the other thing we thought about doing was perhaps setting up a a Facebook page or a so, social media platform which perhaps would provide would allow you um beginners to ask questions and, mm -hmm. and 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 follow up on any field experiences that, that they'd had to, to, to and connect with uh, mentors through some sort of social media platform i don't know if uh, if you'll have any of these to hand but can you just tell us just a couple of the so you had some testimonials from some of the the people who were involved can you tell us some of the the experiences that they said stuck with them um I don't have mine to hand, but I can quickly check. Can we look? I can edit this bit out. This is fine. <laughs> I think there was, was, um, was a chap on on one of my sessions. I think we we saw um, we saw a, a long-tailed duck just offshore, and I, I don't think he'd seen one before, and he he he, he was ecstatic with with having seen the, a, a beautiful long-tailed tailed duck in the fourth and as well as uh, there was skeins of pink-footed geese flying across which uh, l left a, a lasting memory uh, for him. Do you feel like you sort of it was a privilege sort of having these experiences through someone else's eyes? Very much so yeah I think uh, to actually see and experience someone who gets your enjoyment from seeing a, a new bird and gaining understanding from from field experiences you know that's that's very satisfying and, and rewarding for for the mentor you know uh, and it just sort of demonstrates that you're basically passing on your your skills and your your enthusiasm uh, onto onto another generation yeah i can imagine that being very rewarding andrew had his searching through his computer face on just then did you find anything yeah. Not not just yet. I'm dry. well. I did. I didn't want to start like slamming keys on the keyboard, but we're recording. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> it, Mike was speaking? But I, it's I okay. Can, I it's can... okay. Um, Mike's given us a lovely answer to that question. It's it, it's a really fascinating subject for me. I think it's such a worthwhile 
thing to have done. I hope that it was a rewarding enough pilot that you're going to do this over and over again. Um, unfortunately, we don't have all night long to talk about this because we've got some very, very serious birding questions to get onto in a minute. Um, but one of the things we do on this podcast is that in between the the first section and the second section, we have a little interlude on on bird noises. So. If you could give us an example, so you mentioned the blue tits and the great tits, but if you've got any other examples of the bird calls that either you struggled to talk about the differences between or the mentees struggled to get their heads around separating them by call, I'd like to hear those. And I can't make any promises, but I will consider doing a, a little session. Andrew has very formally put his hand up in the in the themes <laughs> chat. <laughs> um, <laughs> Glad you noticed. Uh, no, I, I was actually thinking when one of the sessions I went to, one of the things we all very quickly realised was an absolute struggle was when you go anywhere near conifer plantations in winter and you mm. get cold tits, gold crests, blue tits, tree creepers, all doing these high pitched contact calls. Okay. And, and it suddenly became very overwhelming as trying to decipher what and long-tailed tits for that matter what high-pitched calls belong to who and, and um that would be something i'd love to learn more about okay challenge accepted <laughs> reluctantly uh <laughs> okay so i'm going to go off and talk about that in a minute and then we'll come back and we'll hear more from mike and andrew about something slightly less serious so andrew's asked us to have a listen to some of the really high-pitched calls you might hear in coniferous forests, particularly in the autumn and winter, I guess. And we have restricted us to three species here, so long-tailed tit, cold tit, and gold crest. Blue tit also make a very high-pitched call, like a little contact call when birds are feeding together. That sounds very similar to the calls I'm going to play you. One of the reasons that we're not covering that now is because I can't find a decent recording of that. Um, but anyway, there's more than enough to, to get involved with, with with the three species that we've got here. Now, what I will say is that one of the reasons that we find it difficult to separate between these types of calls is that we do not have an awful lot of information to work with. They are at the higher end of the frequency range that we can hear. So what we hear is often quite faint. And the calls are very, very short as well. And there's not an awful lot of variety. So we don't have an awful lot to work with. What I'll also say is that when I play the recordings in a moment, if you have lost some of your higher frequency range hearing, then it might sound like I'm playing nothing at all. And if that is the case, I apologise. Um, I am. There is definitely some sound there, but it just might be a little bit too high frequency for some people to hear. But anyway, I'm going to play the recordings now. So what you heard there were first gold crests, and then cold tit, and then long-tailed tit. And you'll probably agree that there is an awful lot of similarity between those calls. But there are ways that you can approach identifying them. So gold crest, to me, is quite a gentle call. Not quite as gentle as cold tit, but quite gentle. But the key features for me for gold crest are that it sounds very sibilant. That means... Um, there's some sort of modulation in the call, much like you'd hear in a blackbird's flight call or a waxwing call, for example. And it's also upslurred. So what you get is this sort of 
I'm not very good at doing impressions of it. Hopefully get, that gives you the idea. And it's an upslur, which is quite obvious when you when you hear it well, which will really give it away. We go on to the call tip, which is the gentlest of the three calls so far, and it lacks any of that sibilance. And it's actually quite featureless, but that high-pitched call is very often accompanied by other noises that sound a lot more cultit-like. So you get some of these upslurred and downslurred, more classic cultit-type noises, albeit quiet versions, in with the other calls as well. And then finally, we have long-tailed tit. That's another sibilant call, but it's, it lacks the upslurred quality of Goldcrest. It's also quite comfortably the punchiest and loudest of the those calls of that sort that you'll hear. It's quite abrupt sounding, and also it's always interspersed with these quite hard sort of chack sounds that you'll hear in the recording. So remember that. If you, there's quite a lot to remember, but try and remember that and have another listen to those same recordings and see if that makes sense. Right then, that was me wittering on about, well, some bird calls. It's likely to be high-pitched coniferous forest bird noises, I think. Andrew has asked me to do that, and I'm thrilled about that, because that's going to be quite a tough one to, to get through. But anyway, now to the less serious, more birdery type questions. And this section always starts with a time machine question, and this one's for you, Mike. So while you're drinking your beer, I will ask you, if you had access to a time machine once and once only, what moment in your burning life would you go back to and why? Well, I think it's it's got to be one of two locations and times. Uh, uh, I was fortunate enough to warden on the Farne Islands off the, the northeast coast of, of England, and uh, I shall never, ever forget living and working, being surrounded by, you know, huge tern colonies and, and internationally important seabird colonies which was um, which was quite awe-inspiring and i think uh, that that moment really drove a, and, and, and drove a lot of my passion going forward you know having experienced that but into the mix there was of course the interest of of migration as well on the Farne islands so we had seabird migration i'll never forget watching the hundreds of sooty shearwaters and manx shearwaters passing offshore and finding a blue throat and a, a common rose finch as well on the island so so that was that was a, a very uh, left a big impression on me having wardened there on the Farne islands and i think it was 92 and then it was handa as well i, I was I warned on handa again surrounded by uh, huge seabird populations which, which was uh, amazing what would you say to me if I said to you that when you've seen one seabird colony, you've seen them all? Uh, I would just say that is completely <laughs> untrue. Because <laughs> each seabird colony is has it's within a different setting, with uh, you know, a different uh, range of species. So yeah, I would say that's completely untrue. <laughs> I used to work with people who monitored seabird colonies, uh, and they didn't like it when I said that to them. So I should have known what the response was going to be. Um, you That's the sort of stupid question that you might want to put into a Birding Room 101. But this one's for you, Andrew. So what would you like to put in a Birding Room 101? Oh, that's a, a good question. There's quite a few which actually come to mind. Um, I suppose I've got, I've got three. Um, and okay. I'll list them in, in descending from most serious to 
to slightly silly. But okay, but only only one only one can go in. Okay. Oh no, it's the same. Only one <laughs> can go in. So um, you can choose which one it is. That's fine. Right. Okay. Okay. I will. I will try my best. I think what immediately comes to mind is is, and I see this on a lot of the Facebook pages that I follow on birding sites, but people who laugh at ID requests for common species. I find yeah. that infuriating. If someone's posted yeah. a, a picture of a robin and wants an ID request because they're not sure what it is, uh, it, that's the best opportunity to reply and uh, and give them information on why it's a robin, give them yeah. ID features to look out for and just be respectful and mindful of where a- anyone is at any point in their birding journey. I think that yeah. And it, yeah, it's just something which infuriates me. So I'd, I'd like to definitely put that in room 101. Well, I think that that's going to be a tough one to beat, but let's let's hear the other two as well. <laughs> well, the second the second two seem a bit selfish now, but I, I think that the, the next one is something I've it's happened to be quite a lot when I've been out surveying, especially in the hills um, doing vantage point surveys is when you get these very brief glimpses of birds for mm. a second, two seconds. Um, you're not quite sure what it is. You have this gut feeling that it could be something rare, um, but because those two seconds have gone, you'll never get them back and you'll spend the rest of your life in this kind of life of uncertainty and it'll eat you up inside. And <laughs> you'll never quite know if you saw that rare bird or not. So is, what, uh, I'm, what I'm hearing is you're asking me to put the bird's ability to fly away in room 101. That's that's a hard sell, that one. <laughs> Look, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to put the the feeling of um, eternal dread in room one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We've we've all got ones that have got away. You know, that's uh, some of us have a very long list of ones that have got away. But you've you've got a third option. It seems to me that you don't really like birds or birding at all. You've got. <laughs> I think I might have chosen the wrong profession. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the the third and final thing is if I'm driving and I see an exciting bird from my window and I quickly pull over to the side of the road, hastily grab my binoculars, lower down the window, put the binoculars up to my eyes and then and then they fog up because ah. of the uh, <laughs> change in air temperature and then the bird flies away. So uh, <laughs> and the amount of times it's happened to me, you just suddenly that, get blinded. That is infuriating, but we have a clear winner, which was your first choice, which was, you know, people who forget that everyone starts somewhere um, and I mean not only is it an opportunity to sort of really develop someone's passion and skill but I also think it's an opportunity to present the birding community as a, a nice place to be and there's so many I, I see the same as you you look at these especially Facebook Facebook seems to be particularly bad for that every chuckling answer is another person put off and it's very it's very regrettable that so yeah that's going straight into room 101 and never coming out perhaps perhaps related to this Andrew my next question is for you what's the best piece of birding advice that you've ever been given so I was having a think about this and um I think one of them has to be the idea of making a master list for what you've seen and that it goes a little bit into when you see these birds for brief seconds and you don't know what they are and and sometimes I'd be on the hill and I'd see this bird uh, in my head I'm thinking maybe it's a goshawk but I'll be looking at it and tracking it and in my head I'll just be going what is it what is it what is it oh it's gone uh, and that'll mm. be it and I, at no point in my brain am I slowing and thinking okay I need to make a, a list of possible birds and then make a case for each one um so this is some something someone told me basically to create a master list where you create a list of possible birds and then you make a case for each one as if you're in a courtroom and you argue each one as best Mm -hmm. as you can if it's this bird or this bird and the one which you can argue the best comes out on top but I think it's important because it gives every bird an opportunity and and it's objective not subjective in the sense that you won't end up choosing the bird that you want it to be hopefully um so it, and you it makes you a, go through a process it makes you absolutely. ask yourself the same questions for each well first of all knowing what these what the options might be but it makes you ask yourself the same 
questions for each of them and go through the same process for each option. I think that's brilliant advice. And I think that we all do that to some degree. I think that, you know, the, the more experienced you become, the less you do it. But when, you know, old men like me and Mike find something unusual or rare, you know, we go, we revert to that, you know, we might have a rough idea of what we're looking at, but the instinct you have looking at something for the first time and thinking you know what it is, is very different from the feeling you have sometime later when you've gone through the process and eliminate, you know, actually nailed down what it is. So we all, we all do that. I think a lot of us do it without giving it mm. a, a title that makes it sound like work, but, uh, <laughs> but I think it's a really, really good piece of advice. I'm going to I'm going to go to Mike now. Um, I've got two for you, Mike. Which one should I go for first? Okay. What would you predict to be the next first for Scotland? And you can give as much detail as you like about this. You can say where you think it's going to be and who might find it and all the rest of it. I think uh, it could well be a, a rare petrel or shearwater. Um, yeah, I was reading an article the other day about uh, a band-rumped storm petrel that had been uh, satellite tracked all the way up from the. Uh, it was, I think, it was it was somewhere in the Macronesian Islands off Africa, and uh, it it come all the way up to, I think, the southwest approaches of of England. So, uh, and returned back to its its, its breeding colonies. So, I think you, know, um, I would predict perhaps. A, a rare storm petrel, uh, you know, maybe a, a bandrum storm petrel, or maybe a, a Madeiran storm petrel off the the west coast of Lewis. But I guess that seen on a, a maybe on a pelagic seabird trip off the west coast of Lewis, that would probably be my best bet. But also, I think with sea watching, we tend to focus on just key months. I think perhaps sea watching slightly out, out with those. Key, key times as well might produce something quite different. Um, if, for instance, we had we had a white chin, is it a white chin petrel uh, in Orkney? Mm-hmm. Um, so, so that just shows you that you know anything can turn up. Yeah, you're right. We we fall into these patterns because I think the rarities that we expect to see, well, those are the ones that we go that we go looking for. Yeah, the rarities yeah. that we don't expect to see, we don't go looking for them. So nobody's sea watching in February for for Grant Storm Petrol or whatever that one was because nobody's ever seen one before but you're right you know doing things sort of slightly out of kilter with everyone else is probably one of the ways that you may well find one of these one of these mega rarities now you talked about seabirds and seabird colonies so maybe maybe this will be reflected in your next answer Mike what sort of bird would you like to be reincarnated as well, it's not actually, uh, Mark. It's it's not a seabird. It's it's a bird of prey. I mean, I think my my favourite bird uh, in the world has got to be the golden eagle, uh, and Scotland has a, a pretty good population of golden eagles. So I think I'd like to come back as a a golden eagle. It's a bird that you know. I I, I think it would be quite thrilling, sort of soaring over the the high high mountain ranges of of Scotland uh, and and looking for and, and flushing out ptarmigan and uh, mountain hares to, as, as prey and uh, I've uh, I've asked that uh, when I die I'd like to be um, I would like to, to to have an aerial burial I'd like to be taken up to a Scottish mountain and 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 uh, fed to a golden eagle and taken up to the heavens uh, I think that would be wow. a fitting end. When you said I had no idea what an aerial burial was, and I just had visions of somebody pushing a coffin out of an aeroplane, but that's not what you mean, is it? <laughs> well, I think I think it would probably uh, it wouldn't be uh, legal to do in this country, uh, but it is that that uh, practice of aerial burials is mm. is 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 common in in countries like India and Nepal, where they take dead bodies up to up to high mountain tops for lammergars and and eagles to come down mm. and feed on. And, and and get taken up into the heavens and and and, and into the the other world. So I think that's a wonderful concept, and it's also it's it's a process of recycling, isn't it, back into yeah. the environment. Lovely, lovely stuff. I do like that answer a lot. Now, one question I'm I'm going to ask you both. 
it's an uncomfortable question but i do like to i like to get guests to talk about it because i think that some of us are in these positions of where we have some responsibility to the, the next generation of birders and i think that it it's important that we don't present ourselves as being untouchable and all the rest of it so i'm going to ask you both to tell me about the biggest birding blunders that you've ever made you're both really reluctant here right? nobody's saying anything <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm, very, I'm all for this thankfully i'm not at that stage of responsibility yet so i can talk about all the blunders i want and uh, <laughs> i think what, what one does come to mind actually was my first um bit of paid survey work um uh and i was out doing surveys in the highlands and i didn't really have much experience of moorland birds and we were doing these long straight transect surveys and recording pretty much every bird we see bar meadow pipits um but i had it in my head that skylarks as well as ascending and doing that rich fluty song as they rise they also did this parachuting see, 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 <laughs> as they came to the ground um and i think for the the, the following three days i recorded every single meadow pipit i saw as a skylark and uh <laughs> I had the greatest overestimation of uh, skylight density in the Highlands. <laughs> so, uh, which which development hasn't gone ahead because of that? Then <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm afraid I'm not going to be able to say. <laughs> I'm going to stay very quiet from here and out. <laughs> okay, Mike, over to you then. Okay, Mark. Yeah, I think my biggest birding blunder was. Uh, I was actually working for the RSPB in 99 on, on the Capacale National S Survey Census. And I was with a colleague, we were walking through a beautiful area of Abernethy Forest in the, in, in the Pinewood. And uh, I saw something, a dark shape, I think, in the mid distance. And uh, I, 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 I whispered to my, my colleague, oh, it's a, I think I've got a, a male Capacale. I just see over there. And we both raised our bins, and as we raised our bins, a roe deer jumped out of the <laughs> the forest. And uh, to my great embarrassment, so uh, I, I managed to string a roe deer into a capercaillie. Lovely. So thank you so much for for answering that question and all the rest of them. I think that you know the mentoring scheme is such a worthwhile thing to have done. I really hope that it it kicks on beyond a pilot and I really hope that other SOC branches and other bird clubs you know warm to the idea and, and take on something like this themselves I, I don't really know what this is going to look like but I suspect that SOC will have some involvement in facilitating the expansion of this sort of project across Scotland for those branches that, that want to to run something like that and you know if every branch can engage handful of young people every year give them really valuable experiences get them involved with the running of the club ultimately then the club is going to be in very very good hands in the future so thank you very much for for doing what you've done thanks for coming along tonight and answering some serious and some silly questions and good luck with it for the future guys thanks a lot thank you very thank much you. thank you for letting me come along thanks mark Earlier on, Mike was telling us that one of the things he struggled to do was to describe the differences between the calls of some common birds. Uh, he used crow and rook as an example, so I thought it would be a nice idea to have a look at that here. Now, I'm pretty sure Mike knows how to tell the difference between a crow and a rook when they call, but actually describing that to someone else can be quite tricky. Let's have a listen. So what you heard there were four calls from a carrion crow and then four calls from a rook shortly after. And yes, of course, they sound the same. They're very broadband, i.e. they cover a wide range of frequencies and the duration of the calls are similar. And tonally, you know, they're harsh croaking calls. So they sound very similar. I noticed two things, and they're much more obvious to me 
through looking at the sonograms than they might be just by listening. But what I noticed is that crow calls sound higher pitched. And the reason for that is that there's a lot more energy in the call at higher frequencies. So the, the bottom range of the frequencies is the same for both species. But crows put more power into the call at higher frequencies than rooks do. And the result of that is that rooks sound at their lower frequency. The other thing I've noticed is that the rook call, in terms of its frequencies, it is very flat sounding. When we listen to the crow, we hear it going, air, air, so it tails off at the end, or it sort of deepens in frequency towards the end, whereas the rook sounds really, really flat. It's just like a all the way through. So have a listen and see if you can hear those differences. So that's the end of this ornithological chat. Thank you again very, very much to Mike and to Andrew for coming along and talking to us about the mentoring scheme that they've piloted and hope to roll out more extensively throughout Lothian and hopefully throughout Scotland. And if you're involved with the Bird Club and you've been trying to reach out to a younger audience, then maybe this is the sort of thing that you could do too. And if you want some more info, Please do get in touch with me at SOC and I can pass any questions on you have to Mike and Andrew or anyone else who is involved with the Lothian Mentoring Scheme and I'm sure they'd be very happy to help. I don't have much to plug, but what I will say is that our website continues to be excellent, our journal continues to be excellent and our subscription rates continue to be very, very good. What I will say is that I've been thinking about the conference which is happening at the end of the year. It's There's a really interesting schedule of speakers lined up and there's an exciting way for people to access that without being physically at the conference so look out for some information on that as well but in the meantime i'm going to leave you with a song thrush that was belting it out a couple of weeks ago one of the best bird songs i think Uh, so enjoy this and enjoy the rest of the new coming migrants of the spring until the next time good birding